Welcome, everyone. All right, mic works. Excellent. Um, my name is Ryan Cordell. I'm going to welcome you to the, our panel on the materiality of digital objects. Um, I'm going to start by introducing our, our moderator, who I suspect many of you will, will know quite well. And I've, I've asked him to say just a very few words to frame the topic of the panel. And then after that, we will have each of our, our speakers come up, and I will introduce them all uh, before they speak. Um, sorry. I'm Ryan Cordell. I'm assistant professor in the English Department at Northeastern University in Boston, and that is sufficient about me. All right. <laughs> all right. So I want to introduce Matthew Kirschenbaum, who is associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Maryland and the associate director of the Maryland Institute for Technology in the Humanities. He's also an affiliated faculty member with the College of Information Studies at Maryland and a member of the teaching faculty at the Rare Book School. Uh, his first book, Mechanisms, New Media and the Forensic Imagination, won all of the awards. If I, list, if I listed them all, then we would not have time for our panel. Um, and his most recent book, Track Changes, A Literary History of Word Processing, uh, was published by Harvard University Press, I believe last year, is that right, Matt? And uh, I, I, again, I could do far more with this biography, but I'm going to keep it brief and uh, ask Matt to come up and, and set the stage for us. Good afternoon. Um, thanks again, Ryan. I've been looking forward to this, and this is where I get to earn my green ribbon um, by saying a few words at the, the outset of this session. So with a growing number of us now bringing self-identified bibliographical attention to what the media philosopher Yuqui has lately and rigorously formalized as the digital object, there's a question of first principles that presents itself. The session, Ryan, that you've organized gives us a, an opportunity to, to address that question here at this conference. And the question of first principles for me is, is this. Is bibliography analogic? That is, merely, only, finally, just an analogy when applied to texts and objects in a digital state? Now, we know that several scholars, none more famously than Don McKinsey, have explicitly declared digital matter wholly within the purview of bibliographical method. Uh, my personal favorite is the historian R.J. Morris, who looked forward in, back in the 1990s to the day when, quote, a small and elite band of e-paleographers would extract data signal by signal from obsolescent disks. And while I agree with the impulse to preserve bibliography as a locus for such activity, what McKinsey and Morris could not foresee was the emergence of a whole panoply of critical practices now commonplace in the digital field, namely, I'm thinking of platform studies, software studies, media archaeology, critical code studies, even format theory, which format does not mean quite the same thing that it may for most people at this conference. <laughs> to take just this last as representative, format theory has been glossed by Jonathan Stern in his book-length treatment of a single digital format, the MP3, as, quote, the stuff beneath, behind, and beyond the boxes our media come in. 
Format theory demands specificity when we talk about media, says Stern, and, quote, it invites us to ask after the changing formations of media, the contexts of their reception, the conjunctures that shaped their sensual characteristics, and the institutional policies in which they are enmeshed. So this sounds pretty good to me. Um, it also sounds an awful lot like the way bibliographers talk about books. So why cling to bibliography then with its residual bookishness when we can pick and choose amongst more self-evidently media-specific approaches keyed to format, platform, and code? When Alan Galley, who will speak in a little while, stripped the vowels of code to reconstruct the series of production errors behind the misplaced epigraphs in the Kobe ebook edition of Johanna Skibsrud's prize-winning novel, The Sentimentalists, we could speak of bibliography unproblematically, or so it seems to me. We had a bookish object and a bookish problem. But what does it mean to call for a bibliography of lolcats and animated gifs and pepe memes? Are there enumerative bibliographies of fake news to be written? What is the descriptive bibliography of a tweet, or a tweet storm, or a data set, or a spreadsheet, or a Python script, or a server log? Given that we now live amongst an internet of things, should we have bibliographies of our refrigerators, or our Honda Accord transmission? If we think the answer is, yes, sure, sign me up, bring it on, for any or all of these, then we're back to that question of first principles, which is, why bother with bibliography at all? Why not just call what we're doing media archaeology or data curation or forensics and do it conscientiously and well, leaving bibliography for more stubbornly bookish things? Part of an answer may surface in two recent books from Annette V. and Dennis Tennant, who each compellingly remind us that everything digital is also made of code and text. And where there is code in the form of alphanumeric strings and where there is plain text, there is textuality and a textual condition. But bibliography also, it seems to me, demands something more than an encounter with text. Bibliography is also an appeal to methods and values and what I have elsewhere called habits of mind. I say this not out of any desire for disciplinary gatekeeping, but rather to equip us to focus on what is gathered and named by, by the bibliographical enterprise, what it has to give these other, newer, just gaining ground critical practices, how it may enter the conversation and what it has to share, to gift, possibly even withhold. Indeed, Tenen goes so far as to maintain that the ebook on his desk has more in common with his smart smoke detector, with its sensors and firmware and IP address, than it does with the actual books on his bookshelf. What specific qualities of attention or habits of mind does bibliography bring to digital objects that other forms of materialism, no less fierce in their own pursuits, do not? So that is the question for me of first principles. I look forward to the papers that follow and the work they promise to do in helping us um, address that question here today. Um, thank you.
Thank you, Matt. Already much to think about here. So I'm going to introduce our first uh, pair of speakers. Uh, Jessica Otis is Digital Humanities Specialist in the University Libraries and Visiting Assistant Professor of History at Carnegie Mellon University. She received her PhD in History and her Master's of Science in Mathematics from the University of Virginia and is a former CLEAR DLF postdoctoral fellow in Early Modern Data Curation. She is a co-principal investigator on the NEH-funded Six Degrees of Francis Bacon Digital Humanities Project, as well as on the A.W. Mellon Foundation-funded Digits Digital Publishing Project. Her articles have appeared in the Journal of British Studies, Digital Humanities Quarterly, and the International Journal of Humanities and Arts Computing. And she'll be speaking uh, with Megan J. Brown, who is the Digital Production Editor at the Folger Shakespeare Library. She received her PhD in the History of Text Technologies from Florida State and an MSIS from the University of Texas at Austin. She is currently researching addresses to readers in early modern printed books, modern citation practices, and digital asset management, and is happy to talk about how these really are related. Keep hold of that. Yes. All right. Mine. Yes. Meg is in charge of the slideshow. Uh, this is probably a good thing. All right. Um, so, whether born digital or digitized from analog repository holdings, digital primary materials increasingly challenge our understanding of what constitutes a library's collections. Content management systems built in the early decades of digitization reified divisions that many institutions now seem antiquated. Textual material was digitized, preserved, and served to users differently than images, sound, video, or tabular data, just as manuscripts were in many libraries kept separate from printed books. Library catalogs didn't serve up images of holdings materials, and image servers often lacked the bibliographical depth and nuance of online catalogs. But just as we're now reconsidering whether a Gabriel Harvey-inscribed book can be categorized as a manuscript or a printed book, we should also reconsider how format influences our digital systems. Does it make sense to use categories deriving from the format of digital surrogates, whether facsimile image, sound recording, or encoded transcription, to separate how users find and view them? How can library systems best present these digital materials to the scholarly users? This question is vital as libraries aim to facilitate work by researchers who may want image, sound, or movie files and their transcriptions, or computationally inclined scholars who want all of the above and their encodings in various markup languages. But we can't answer this question without first untangling some of the complicated issues behind accurately representing the relationships among digital objects and their physical progenitors, much less the relationship between digital objects and their digital progenitors. Doing so requires us to put critical thought into the metadata that we use to name digital objects and describe them to the systems that enable search and browse functions. Historic naming systems for files carry information, just as historic shelf marks do, indicating systems of arrangement as well as reuse. On the other hand, identifiers associated with digital objects physical as well as digital history are critical for discovery, access, and reproduction in the scholarly ecosystem. Patrick Henry Winston framed the concept for his MIT artificial intelligence class as the Rumpelstiltskin principle. To manipulate a digital object, you first have to name it. So what's in a name? And I have to make a certain number of Shakespeare references. It's in my contract. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
There are multiple ways we can name objects, most of which enable some form of search, discovery, acquisition, or citation of that object in digital systems and scholarly discourse. These identifiers can be human legible or machine readable, generic or unique, global or granular. Citations in scholarly articles or monographs, for example, must be human legible but not necessarily unique. Technically, a book title is an identifier. In a citation, different levels of granularity have differing utility. A scar analyzing marginalia in a printed book needs to cite a singular physical copy of a specific edition of a book through a call number, whereas a scholar making a brief biblical reference might cite a general translation by short title. In search and discovery, sometimes a user is seeking a specific object, and sometimes they want to find a kind of thing. In the former instance, they will have greater success with a unique identifier, such as a shelf mark, call number, or a DOI, a digital object identifier. In the latter, they might want to search with collective identifiers, such as item numbers from enumerative bibliographies, or ISBNs, international standard book numbers. And alongside all of this is another set of database identifiers, often invisible to the casual user, which enables each library system to serve up digital content to searching scholars. While some of these identifiers, such as DOIs, have their origin in the digital world, most were originally designed to identify material objects. Consider, for example, a call number that, when requested, calls up an early modern quarto. While created for paging a specific object physically, many scholars carry over this practice into the digital sphere by using call numbers, shelf marks, press marks, and other identifiers to retrieve digital catalog records and facsimile images. Similarly, bibliographical catalog entry numbers are a convenient way to describe works that otherwise have largely the same metadata, the same title, author, publisher, and even date of publication. When scholars subsequently need to identify works in a citation, they reference shelf marks or bibliographical numbers and thus reinforce these identifiers' usefulness. Problematically, scholars also carry the citation practice over into the digital sphere. Instead of being explicitly named, the digital surrogate is searched and cited the same way as the physical object scholars perceive themselves to have ultimately consulted. This is not for lack of digital identifiers. Just as moving a book from a private collection to an institution typically adds a new shelf mark to its provenance, each stage in a digital object's process of remediation or transformation adds or replaces an identifier. The version of Ben Johnson's The Alchemist, available from the University of Oxford Text Archive, for example, lists a variety of IDs associated with the printed edition of the play, STC, ESTC. Its digital manifestation is images, ProQuest, Evo, and its subsequent transcription, OTA, permanent URLs, DLPS. Each references a different physical or digital stage in the digital provenance of the file presented in the Oxford Text Archive and scholars are capable of, though not currently acculturated to, citing each distinctly. This particular transcription of Ben Johnson's The Alchemist is the descendant of a quarto seen on a shelf at the British Library. Each stage in the book's digitization and remediation involved someone making a decision about how users would search for it, what identifiers they would need to use to confirm that they had found the work that they were seeking, and what identifiers were necessary for the content management systems to function properly. The early English books microfilm series took its coverage mandate from the Pollard and Redgrave short title catalog of books printed in the British Isles from 1475 to 1640 and organized its indices by STC number. 
When the microfilm reels were digitized, the early English Books Online database adopted the same IDs for search. They also preserved previously functional IDs, namely the microfilm reel numbers, as metadata, while assigning new unique IDs. The unique IDs were assigned sequentially as the microfilm was digitized, which means that the early English Books Online unique IDs mostly mapped the EEB microfilm reel locations. While the EBO Textual Creation Partnership transcribed EBO's images, they followed a similar process of creating their own new unique IDs and preserving the EBO unique IDs as metadata. But what EEB, and thus EBO, and EBO TCP did not preserve was the shelf mark of the physical book that was originally captured on microfilm. So while you can search the EBO TCP transcription database at Oxford, for the EBO record ID, in this case 99845007, or the STC number 14755, you cannot search the, for the British Library shelf mark 644B56. In the Stasi chain of provenance, we've maintained the relationship between the digital objects, but we've lost the link to the physical book. This may in some ways be quite a blessing for EBO's database developers. Many historic shelf marks and enumerative bibliographies use asterisks, parentheses, full stops, and other pieces of punctuation that carry information about previous owners, materials, or arrangements of text. Such symbols create problems for databases, where these, quote, special characters have reserved functions. If you ever want to see a database designer cry, ask for searchable Greg numbers from his bibliography of English printed drama to the Restoration, which employs asterisks, daggers, and double daggers to distinguish among states in the print run. Historic identifiers, nonetheless, remain a vital component to the scholarly workflow. As long as scholars continue to find these identifiers cited in their sources, they will in turn continue to search for and cite with them. This requires us to build systems that can accommodate as many of the most common identifiers as reasonably possible. For example, the Folgers Digital Anthology of Early Modern English Drama makes visible Greg, STC, Database of Early English Playbooks, and Wiggins numbers for each physical book, as well as a link to the online catalog of the Holding Library. The digital provenance is represented by links to the encoded texts that lead to the EMID file, the EBO TCP, and Shakespeare His Contemporaries transcriptions. As the profusion of identifiers in the EMED alchemist suggests, bibliographers have long employed systems of ID numbers to distinguish among editions and states of early modern printed works. These bibliogra- uh, bibliographies assign sequential numeric or alphanumeric IDs, a form known as serial IDs, to works based on a system of arrangement. The STC is arranged by author while Greg organized his entries by the supposed date of publication of the earliest surviving edition. Both attributed authors and supposed date of publication are subjects of scholarly debate. The STC was introduced in 1926, revised in the 70s and 90s, and remediated into the English short title catalog, the ESTC, in the 1980s. The ESTC instituted its own ID system to circumvent the growing complexity of legacy STC numbers, some of which were by then well known to be ghosts or indications of non-existent editions. While the ESTC embodies more recent scholarship, STC numbers are more likely to be used in citations, both as scholarly habit and because you cannot search most online databases by ESTC number. If the ID uh, is serving to disambiguate editions, 
using the ESTC number would be preferable. If it's actually a shorthand for easy database access, the STC number is far more useful. The process of assigning new identification codes to digital objects marks our understanding that the text has undergone a transformation and a new system of arrangement is needed. As scholars, however, we have reasons to hold on to the older naming systems. They appear in citations and they link an object to secondary resources, such as bibliographies or library catalogs. As we build complex digital corpora, we need to critically consider how users will search it and what feedback they need to confirm a search has been successful. How scholars find and access our materials is affected by which specific and general identifiers we include in our digital corpora and how they are displayed or not. To see an example of this in action, let's start in the Folger Shakespeare Library with a box of 58 letters from members of the English Privy Council. Users might, want, might discover a letter from this box in our holdings through a variety of means. Our digitized finding aids are among the most detailed and interlinked resources for discovering what we have available in, for digital letters. If a user discovers this box, Folger MSXD30, through the finding aid, they're provided with a link directly to the digitized images on a letter-by-letter -letter basis as well as to our brand new request system so they can call the physical letter to the reading room or request a high-definition digital image. As Hamlet catalog search for Folger MSD 30 parentheses 1 from a citation in a scholarly article or the title Letters of the Privy Council would return a collection-level metadata record for the entire box. Although the call number is an essential identifier for the physical act of calling a book, call numbers are subject to change so we have made an effort to avoid using them as systems identifiers. Each record also has two serial IDs, a bib ID for the entry assigned, to that bibliographic, assigned when that bibliographic entry was put into the system, and a holdings ID that helps to differentiate when the library holds multiple copies of a title. Emily Wall, our metadata specialist, emphasizes that the holdings IDs are far more stable for linking than call numbers and are copy specific, so using them corrects connects the records to other digital properties, results with fewer broken links as call numbers change. Users might alternatively search for XD30 parentheses 1 in our image database, Luna. Searching the call number is far more efficient way to find this digitized letter than using keywords, as we have over 1,500 digitized items that correspond to the Privy Council. In Luna, the user would encounter four separate images associated with the same call number, the front and back of two sheets of paper, one the letter itself and the other the envelope. Our single letter is in fact four digital files. Each image has its own unique ID, a digital file name. Luna displays this number alongside the metadata from Hamnet and the metadata from the photography department created during the digitization process. The digital file name is quite prominent in Luna metadata because it serves several functions, some of which require human action. It allows the server to call the specific image, for users to locate that image through search, and it's needed for actions in other digital systems, including requesting high-resolution images for publication. Users interested in this early 1540s letter have three main options at the moment to find it and can access it either in person or via facsimile image. There are two major metadata systems that describe it. But currently, the digital image is supplied with data from the less precise catalog description using metadata from the collection as a whole to describe one letter in Luna. This system has major benefits for bound objects. It makes it easy to extrapolate metadata for a book across many images of page openings, but we can do better for manuscripts. 
where in the example above, the, the names associated with all 58 letters appear with each of the images. We're fixing this next week. As we redesign how our systems talk to each other and which IDs are essential links between them, we can begin to make use of the detailed metadata provided in lesser used, more granular resources like the finding aids to better describe our digital objects. On the last paragraph, don't panic. Library content management systems are charged with presenting a widening variety of digital materials to scholarly users. As we design and build these systems, we need to know more about scholarly search behavior, how discovery occurs, and how our users confirm the search has been successful. Understanding scholarly workflows can eliminate seemingly contradictory identifier use, such as the proliferation of bibliographical identifiers that indicate not an obsession with identifying additions, but the use of facsimile image databases. Researchers cite and want to search for both physical objects and their digital surrogates using historical and field-specific identifiers, as well as more recent digital system identifiers. We therefore need to rethink the representation of digitization to more fully and explicitly describe the relationship between the physical and digital object, while also making clear the identifiers users expect. As we build the database and repositories that underpin our digital holdings, we need to incorporate consistent metadata and new semantic relationships into our digital system. How we build library content management systems shape what scholars will get out of them. A rose by any other name must still be findable. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So next we'll hear from Alan Daly who is Associate Professor in the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto and Director of the Collaborative Program in Book History and Print Culture. His research and teaching are located at the intersection of textual studies, the history of books and reading, and the digital humanities, and his current research focuses on the bibliographical study of born digital texts and artifacts. Well, you already know where my first slide is going. Uh, I should mention for the benefit of uh, those of you with uh, laptops open maybe following along electronically or with Apple devices, there may be a point in my paper where if, if I'm persuasive enough, I might be motivating you to go to iTunes and make a purchase on impulse. Don't buy anything on iTunes until I've reached the end of the paper. You'll understand why. I may just hopefully I've saved you some money um, that I lost myself. So, uh, thank you, Ryan, and, uh, for organizing the panel. Thank you, Matt, for that introduction. Um, so, in the decades since Don McKenzie challenged bibliographers to extend their field scope to digital texts, we have come to inherit a diversity of textual artifacts, of digital textual artifacts, that are old enough to convey a sense of historicity. Digital objects already had histories in 1993 when McKenzie made his challenge to the Bibliographical Society in London in its most persuasive form, I believe. But for most textual scholars at that time, in the 1990s, the take-up of new technology was decidedly about the futurity of digital tools rather than the pastness of digital materials. By the second decade of the 21st century, however, we have come to live in a world of digital artifacts that I believe reflect the science fiction aesthetic of the used future. Like the lived-in environments and well-worn technologies of much contemporary science fiction since the late 1970s, many of the digital texts, software, and other artifacts we live and work with today 
seemed less like the flying saucer in the 1951 film The Day the Earth Stood Still, smooth, ageless, impenetrable, more like the Millennium Falcon in the Star Wars films, lived in, scruffy looking. It's in constant need of repair, sometimes mistaken for junk. It's uh, somehow still flying long after its probable operational lifespan. The Falcon, remember, was not a military flagship or some experimental prototype. It was merely a working cargo vessel. Like its working class sister ships, the Nostromo from Ridley Scott's first alien film and the Serenity from Joss Whedon's Firefly series, the Millennium Falcon arrives on the screen with a history readable through its imperfections and I would suggest with all the mystery and stubborn durability of a used book, perhaps one annotated by Gabriel Harvey, perhaps not. Like many of the books that we study, it may be an object of nostalgia and romance to some of us, but in its originating context, it was a normal workaday object that happened to have a remarkable history. Some of you may be noting the textual variant, as it were, in this particular version of the image, which I won't get into. My paper today is part of a larger project that makes a case for bibliography as a discipline uniquely equipped, paraphrasing Mackenzie, to uncover the signs of human presence in digital artifacts. Those humanizing dings, paint scratches, and coffee rings that ground new technologies within human timescales and experiential worlds. Traditional bibliography, book history, and related forms of textual scholarship have developed methods and interpretive frameworks to help us recognize and make sense of the humanizing traces to be found in print and manuscript books and documents. And a conference like this is a wonderful reminder of the diversity of phenomena and evidence that our eyes and our other senses have been trained to find in books and other textual artifacts. If W.W. Gregg was right that bibliography is defined not by its materials, but by its methods and mindsets, what then can bibliographical methods and habits of mind teach us about digital artifacts? So given that we are a field that thinks in examples and case studies, I had hoped to pack this paper full of them. Uh, given the time constraints and the fact that I fell down one of those rabbit holes that Anthony Grafton mentioned this morning, uh, I'm really going to dig in deeply to one of them and offer a second one briefly at the end. Um, but this is a talk that comes straight from the workbench. And so I'm presenting problems as problems rather than solved problems. Some of you may solve them very quickly in a comment at the end, perhaps, but that's OK. I, I certainly welcome that. It's the process of thinking that I'm really interested here, interested in here. So my first example comes from what should be a straightforward example of a document of a performance. This is Columbia Records' release of Bob Dylan's most infamous concert on his controversial 1966 tour of the United Kingdom. The scare quotation marks here around Royal Albert Hall alert us to some kind of problem right away, and here's the explanation. This recording isn't actually from the Royal Albert Hall, where Dylan played uh, uh, two shows that closed the tour. Uh, this concert is actually from the Manchester Free Trade Hall a week prior on the 17th of May, 1966. Columbia scare quotes the title because early bootlegs of this concert falsely gave Royal Albert Hall as the venue. It's a little bit like uh, the uh, early modern paratext that, that some of us study where uh, a title page or an epistle may try to discredit a previous edition, uh, Gorbaduk being one of the classic examples. Uh, but right here on the cover of a record, we have a text that bears the traces of its transmission history with it. This recording happens to be an important document in music history, too. There's one moment during the 1966 Manchester concert that's of particular interest to historians of popular music. 
and any Dylan fans present here today may have guessed what it is. I mentioned that Dylan's 1966 concerts were controversial. The reason was that the great acoustic troubadour, Bob Dylan, previously idolized by folk music fans, had begun playing electric guitars and bringing electric blues musicians on stage with him. This resulted in Dylan, for example, being booed at the Newport Folk Festival just the year before. His 1966 concerts to promote the album Blonde on Blonde were a mix of electric and acoustic Dylan. He would play one set on stage alone, acoustic guitar, harmonica, take a break, come back, play an electric set with his backup band, The Hawks, later known simply as The Band. That second set also had some electric versions of songs that had been released acoustically prior to this. The folk purists in the audience in 1966 hated all of this. They felt that an electric guitar in Bob Dylan's hands was a betrayal of his values and identity, or their values and identity. They heckled Dylan between the songs throughout the second set, and finally at the end of the song Ballad of a Thin Man, as Dylan was checking his tuning, one fan could no longer contain himself During a pause, he yells out, Judas! The crowd erupts. Dylan keeps strumming. He says, I don't believe you. You're a liar. Then the band starts counting into the final song like a rolling stone. But as they count in, the microphone just barely picks up Dylan as he turns to his band and he says, play it fucking loud. <laughs> and they do. Music historians have called this a defining moment in the history of popular music in the 20th century. It's certainly an emblematic moment in Dylan's career and in the history of rock music's development out of and tensions with older musical forms. There's even an opportunity here to think about new media, what Lisa Gittleman talks about the value of, of looking at new media in their moments of emergence. An electric guitar and amplifier and PA system is a new medium of a kind. Anyway, soon after this happened, reviewers started commenting on the Judas incident It wasn't until Columbia released this record 30 years later that anyone could hear this moment on an official release. Prior to 1998, the only historical records of this were secondhand accounts or bootleg recordings of the show. One reviewer even called this the most famous rock bootleg in history. But what does this have to do with bibliographical methods? Well, I would suggest that it takes us back to one of the fundamental questions of textual scholarship, which is, are these versions of a given text the same? If they're not the same, what, are the nature of the what is the nature of the difference? How does that difference affect interpretation? And do we need to have both versions? It translates into a very practical question for librarians and archivists and others. Here are um, explanations of the versions that I'm looking at. Uh, in this example, we have ostensibly the same audio text in two formats, or the same content in different containers. A compact disc, which are, uh, is a bearer of CDA files, and then we have M4A files purchased through the iTunes app on my laptop, and uh, M4A is a file suffix used for audio-only MP4 files. MP4 is a cousin of MP3. Uh, MP3 is a format whose history Jonathan Stern unfolds in his highly recommended book, uh, MP3, The Meaning of the Format, to which Matt alluded earlier. I won't go down that rabbit hole right now, but um, in, the, in the case of uh, these examples, the answer to my question, are these two texts the same, is no, because in the iTunes version, the Judas moment and that Dylan's famous play it fucking loud response appeared to have been edited out. Ballad of a Thin Man comes to an end normally, but 
but then it cuts abruptly into like a rolling stone with none of the audience interaction. And I want to be clear just about how strange this is. What's probably the most legally accessible digital version of Rock's most famous bootleg omits the very thing that made it the most famous bootleg. And I don't think this omission is an accident. Uh, the reason why is less important, I think, for our purposes today than how we would go about thinking about this. So I can uh, say that my iTunes version isn't a corrupted file, nor has the file's proper starting index been altered. It's not secretly in there, and it's just starting late. The track lengths actually do differ. Uh, moreover, collating both of these versions by ear actually reveals that nearly all of the audience interaction has been edited out of the iTunes version. A careful listener might notice discontinuities in the applause, but there is nothing in the iTunes description of this digital artifact to tell you that this version differs from that one. There is one customer review that mentions the difference, but that was me. <laughs> sorry, Bob Dylan. Um, sorry, Columbia Records. Uh, having dwelled on this example long enough, I won't exhaust all of the information that one could bring to bear on this question. Um, I haven't exhausted it all myself yet. But I would come back to my initial question. What can a bibliographical perspective teach us about this textual problem that we wouldn't have known otherwise? That's the key part. So one bibliographical principle that could make a difference in thinking about this textual problem is what Fredson Bowers has called the postulate of normality. Matt employs this, for example, in his PBSA article, Operating Systems of the Mind, on John Updike and word processing. And it may help here, too. In essence, the postulate of normality holds that printing normally happens within a rational and constrained set of possibilities. Exceptional events can happen. There are bibliographical equivalents of cats walking across keyboards. I suppose if you study word processing, there are actual cats and actual keyboards. Uh, but Bauer's postulate holds that we shouldn't reach for the exceptional first. So in this case, the postulate would uh, lead us to conclude that this is the way it is, the iTunes version is the way it is, because a human being or human beings made a decision. A bibliographical principle like this leads us back to one of the central preoccupations of textual scholarship, labor. Specifically, the interface between human labor and the technologies of textual production. In this case, the editing of the Judas moment uh, leads me to ask whether this kind of trimming uh, happens throughout the Columbia catalog. Does it happen throughout the bootleg series of Bob Dylan's records? Uh, is it an iTunes thing? This is a question I'm still investigating. I'd, I'd be very grateful if anybody could shed light on that. I'm going to skip over um, one of the other dimensions here, which is, has to do with bibliographical description. I will just briefly recommend Nathan Altus's appendix uh, in his wonderful book on uh, the NES entertainment system from uh, MIT's platform series, where he adds an appendix on the bibliographical description of video games. It's a useful analogy. I want to come to my last example uh, and spend just a bit more time on that, though. I said there were going to be two examples. Um, the last one actually uh, takes us right back to uh, bibliography itself, the core of bibliography, and that's uh, a quotation from W.W. Gregg. Gregg, uh, Matt alluded to bibliography's inner potential to deal with born digital materials. Uh, Gregg's most proto-digital statement, uh, proto statement about bibliography uh, he made in Bibliography and Apologia from a talk in 1932. Uh, this is Greg demonstrating his love of subordinate clauses. I'll go slowly. 
we have, in fact, to recognize that a text is not a fixed and formal thing that needs only to be purged of the imperfections of transmission and restored once and for all to its pristine purity, but a living organism, which, in its descent through the ages, while it departs more and more from the form impressed upon it by its original author, exerts, through its imperfections as much as through its perfections, its own influence on its surroundings. Joseph Lowenstein has called this passage in Greg, uh, he's called it Greg's Prologomenon to the New Cultural History, to Gadamer, Yaus, and McGann. I like to think of it as W. w. Greg turning to his discipline and saying, play it loud. Here's the catch, though. This passage is actually missing from the Oxford Journal's online version of Greg's article as it was published in the library. Here's where it should be in the PDF file available from the Oxford Journal's archive. Page 133 ends mid-sentence. Uh, and then page 136 continues with a new sentence, leaving pages 134 and 135 nowhere to be seen, which includes Greg's compelling statement about texts as living organisms. In the most digitally accessible version of this article by the 20th century's greatest bibliographer, the most proto-digital passage in all of his writing isn't there. And it can't be the result of a missing leaf either. Um, the library was printed, I believe it's in uh, a half-sheet octavo, it's got regular signatures. It's not a missing leaf in the source. I know that much. Really to answer this question though, we need to work between this kind of space where bibliographers are familiar uh, with, with, where print bibliographers work with format, and where digital, uh, digital bibliographers work with things like hex editors, which we can see here as well. This is that file opened in a hex editor. This is as far as I've gotten with this particular line of inquiry. Um, but it does lead us to looking to the bitstream, as Matt has called it in his Rosenbach lectures and, and elsewhere. What I think matters most, though, is that what we see here and what we look for here isn't just a catalog of loss. And W.W. W. Gregg's passage, the thing that's missing, is actually the solution to not just cataloging digital materials as things that are broken, things where important things are lost. Greg's point about the organic nature of texts, I think, is very relevant here, and it helps us situate our own work in the used future of these artifacts. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. I'm sort of still reeling from that last example, actually. It's incredible. Okay, so our last presenter today, uh, Rika Jordan, is Wissenschaftliche Mitarbeiterin, which is roughly assistant professor, okay, in the Department of English and American Studies at the Goethe University in Frankfurt. She obtained her PhD in North American Studies from the Graduate School of, of North American Studies at the Free University in July of 2016. She holds a Master's of Arts from the John F. Kennedy Institute for North American Studies and a Bachelor of Arts from the University of, I did not ask how to pronounce this. Bielefeld. Bielefeld. Yeah. I didn't know that one. Thank you. Um, where was I? Yes, and she was the DAAD Global Humanities Junior Fellow at the Humanities Center at Johns Hopkins University in 2014 and spent an Erasmus semester at the University of Amsterdam in 2010. Her research interests include media archaeology, American pop culture, graphic narratives, nostalgia, detective fiction, and film noir, among others.
Can I play this fucking loud too? No. Mm. I don't see it. Oh, there it is. Cool. Okay, thank you for this wonderful introduction. It's beautiful, yes. <laughs> um, in my talk today, I turn to scans, copies, and PDFs of academic files to think about the transfers of printouts into electronic form and then back onto paper and then back into electronic forms and so on and so forth. I wonder what this merry-go-round of medium-specific properties can tell us about our interaction with knowledge, documents and files in the 21st century. This train of thought places its emphasis then on the cultural and maybe even scholarly work that printouts and PDFs perform today. I argue that they shift from the look of printedness to what I suggest to call the look of printed outness, and I intend to press the intermedial exchanges as well as the infrastructural processes that are made visible in electronic and analog doc documents. Excuse me. Therefore, my talk suggests that printed out PDFs and the look of printed outness can comment on the dissemination of knowledge today. Further, I would like to gesture towards PDFs as historical objects, maybe, for I wonder what it is that we archive here and whose hands, through whose hands these files have already, already gone through. So to tell you a bit more about where I'm coming from, I mean, you heard it, North American studies, North American studies, and from which angle I think about these questions, I've been wondering about what we not call file compatibility, but page compatibility, so questions of interface. I have a background in American studies, and part of my research is, in, is invested in glitches and slippages of um, media made visible in American literature and culture. I'm also very interested in thinking about how file formats or applications are represented in novels. One obvious example here is A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan, which features a chapter written as a PowerPoint presentation, and just to contextualize, to show you what, what this looks like. And um, this is in the middle of her novel, and it's, like I said, written as a PowerPoint presentation, and it is written as a diary. This chapter stages a conversation between the printed page and the dynamic slide and begs the question how literature and applications inform each other today. It certainly adds a component to the novel that we know from office meetings or from conferences, and even tests out the PowerPoint slide as a genre of narration in its own right. Oops. Print and projector, the white page and the white office walls start talking to each other. But there was also something else unfolding to me about this chapter, for I held a presentation about this very um, novel in a colloquium last year, and I wanted to send around this chapter to my colleagues. So I had to borrow the novel from the library in Frankfurt, where I work, because my copy was in Berlin, where I live. Then I did photocopies of the chapter out of the book, then I scanned them, and then I converted these scans into PDFs. And I think that was way too complicated. There must be easier ways to do this. And then I distributed them via email. During the colloquium, I paid attention to what people did with the files. A couple of people had printed versions with them. Others used an iPad or their laptop to look at the chapters, probably to save toner. That experience opened up a lot of questions to me about files that are being sent around and in what way the interaction with these files say something about the production and consumption of knowledge that we will do today. Allow me, therefore, to speak to you as somebody akin to an end consumer of digital and analog files, somebody who reads things and struggles with documents, both as print and on the computer. To sharpen the focus of my talk, 
I would like to single out the cultural or even scholarly work that the PDF performs. Granted, we all know PDFs, and PDFs come in all kinds of weird forms to us. It could, for example, be an IKEA manual, an art catalog, or a novel. But what are they really? Lisa Gittleman maintains in paper knowledge that, and I quote her, PDFs aren't print in the absolute sense that are not printed out, uh, that they aren't printed out on the screen, of course, but they look like print when we open them in a PDF reader application. Better, they look as if they work like print, end of quote, hence the, what she calls the look of printedness. More to the point, the PDF, gives, the PDF gives us a sense that we are looking at, and I quote her again, an image and slash of a text, a text that is somehow also an image of itself, end of quote. I agree, and Gittleman's media history of the PDF and paper knowledge is very compelling, but the text slash image bypasses the properties paper and print also possess and how these properties are lost in that weird transfer that I just described. To paraphrase Gittleman again, what about the folding, the tearing, the crumbling of a piece of paper? Can this be translated? To add to this, Catherine Fitzpatrick suggests that PDFs look like they are under glass, and I quote from her book Planned Obsolescence, that PDFs are, quote, mostly unremarkable, resisting interaction with an active reader or what, uh, with other documents in the network. Most recent iterations of PDF software do allow users to annotate documents, but even so, such annotations remain superficial. The ability to add sticky notes or to mark in the margins of a static document is useful, but no deeper interaction with the text, its author, or its reader is possible." End of quote. So what Fitzpatrick does here is to challenge the dynamic interaction component then, and in what way we can interact with the file intellectually and, ele and electronically, for it remains weirdly static. Of course it's great that a PDF cannot crumble per se, or that it cannot be yellowed out by the sun. Its appearance might be slightly different because my preview or Adobe Reader looks a bit different now compared to, say, 2008. Yet, I would like to take into consideration the traces and imperfections within files as important components that tell us something about the work we do. Like when I copy, scan, distribute Egan's novel that I remove from, uh, that I remove from the book as a PDF and back into the page, something that Alan just uh, alluded to also in his talk. I'm also thinking of copy, shadows, or annotations that already exist, sentences that are already underlined by somebody else. That's not the unremarkable doc the documents that Fitzpatrick sees, but the remarkable ones, or those with already remarks in them. So what do I mean? Let's look at some PDFs that illustrate my idea. And these are just random from my huge PDF collection on my computer. <laughs> Uh, maybe that translates into that. I, I really like these little dents on the left-hand side of that book, just or like the little, little dog's ear on the other side. Also, the hardcover binding is still visible, which I also find kind of amazing. That I found on Twitter randomly, <laughs> and I just I don't even want to start about like the the media that kind of talk to each other here. Mm. But it's, I mean, there's a tweet of a picture of somebody, of a collage of somebody making comments about something, and then somebody else comments on it. But that's just as an example. A shadow that a copying machine produced that looked like spilled coffee up there, exaggerated by the scanner, and also comments of somebody that I'll never meet. Also underlined. A shadow of a hand randomly, 
I don't know who that is. A glitch in the scan. I just found this very randomly on the internet. And of course, an example from the hands of Google Docs. <laughs> the Tumblr. So we see traces and commons, human shadows, specks of dusts, manicules of the 21st century. This is different from the look of printedness of the PDF on our computer or on the iPad, of course. My examples evoke a different idea, maybe one that we should approach as a look of printed outness. The document is scanned to be under glass again on my computer screen. This is peculiar because a rare used book put under glass connotes preciousness. It's commons in the margins carefully studied by scholars. And here it is a scan of a text that is not so rare, but that has already been distributed many times, probably found through Google, multiplied not through a copying machine, but with a vexing copy click on the mouse. The rarefied book then under glass is now a document that could exist on countless devices. The commons visible could amuse us, just like the Lefebvre example, or annoy us because they take away our space that, leave, that we could leave for commons ourselves. Of course, this is also true about books we borrow from the library. But when thinking of printed outness, we think of documents slash books converted back into PDFs. They have obtained the PDF's file suffix after having been scanned by me or by my TA or somebody who I don't even know. So I do not intend to chase the question of the original or the copy here, yet I think that this set of questions of how we scan and print and search for PDFs and print those documents out and then make them electronic again makes visible significant parts of the dissemination and interaction with knowledge. These questions can be indica indication to the shapes and, shape, shapes and shades how books and articles are downloaded, uploaded, printed out, and scanned in again today. Further, it could also give us easier access to questions of how print culture has changed, and this is just a very naive question of mine, when publishing houses to decide to change the properties of texts, of how and when layouts, font sizes, or margins matter. Further, these questions make me wonder about what kind of work processes become apparent. You also alluded to that, Alan, so thank you for the basically setting the stage of how documents, IKEA brochures, or dissertations are transformed into portable media. It is one thing to select, save as PDF and Word, another thing to do photocopies of book chapters and scan them again and print them out and scan them again and print them out again. So allow me to quote Catherine Fitzpatrick again. Files must be mounted, computer must be maintained, software must be updated, data must be backed up and migrated, and people must be paid even if no new data is added to the database, are added to the database, excuse me, end of quote. The used PDF, the scan of a chapter, makes a different set of work steps visible, that the text has already been worked with, quite literally. Somebody else has underlined these sentences for me, and another person has uploaded the file for me to find on Google or a platform of my choice. But it is also my personal labor poured into the PDF collection, I might use an app like Mendeley or have my own archival system of how to store and manage my PDFs on my computer. For part of the larger question here is the aspect of preservation and the archival work performed, obviously. Hence the question of the text being under glass may unfold into another direction here. Lisa Gittleman calls attention to the fact that PDF form, the PDF format is being promoted as archival standard we might be able to do a meta move here and think how our engagement with knowledge and data is reflected within. 
hence not only acknowledge the PDF file being the standard in the digital archive, but wonder what it is that we archive here exactly. Do PDFs then also perform historical work while storing, his, uh, storing historical work? Thus not only the document that is being archived, but also the traces and the shadows in the document or the hand visible in Google Books, or the anonymous comments in the documents. Will there be historical importance to this? <laughs> Allow me to end my talk on the digital slash analog file and the historical work the traces we leave in PDFs perform with two questions that I grapple with, and I do not have answers to these questions. First, I wonder about the question between the corporate environment that the PDF has arisen in and the scholarly work it performs. Just basically think about the paperless office. But also, many PDFs that we use breach copyright or come to us as illegal downloads. I heard that friends of mine receive entire books on USB flash sticks. So how do the office world and the nether world of illegal uh, uploads relate to each other? Further, most texts are scanned to be images, and that's a, uh, also a point that Professor Kirschenbaum makes, which makes searching through the documents oftentimes a nuisance. But if this is an image, should we turn to PDFs also for an aesthetic, artistic value, and ask them to paraphrase W.J.T. Mitchell what they want? For, further, it is, is there beauty in the glitch or the shadow of the hand? What challenges do these glitches or the bad scan pose to the cross-pollination of digital and analog text practices? But these are just gestures, and I think the PDF may be, maybe not too young, but is a very recent medium now to answer these questions that my talk gestured towards um, today. But seeing PDFs as historical objects might give us a sense of how knowledge is made portable and interactive, how the PDF is literally a document of our times, for it is personally at corporate and individualized by somebody else. It's both text and image, akin to an emoji that we text to a friend. Thank you. So I, I, though this is a long paper session, I had asked everyone to stick to 15 minutes rather than 20 so that we would have plenty of time for conversation. Um, and I, I asked Matt to sort of take the lead in our Q&A and then to, we're going to open it up for everyone. But if I could ask all the panelists to come up to the uh, stage so that everyone's available. I really want to compliment the panel on their remarkable restraint in actually sticking to the 15 minutes. It's amazing. We have so much time for conversation. It's lovely. Um, can folks hear me? Do we need the microphone or are we good? It's always best to use a mic. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. Where would we find the mic? Okay. Is there, oh, there look like there are portable mics over there. I'll investigate. Yeah, we, we have the mics we're using this morning. Yeah. Um, Well, while you're getting the mic, I will loom over the panel as I offer my summary question. Um, those were three remarkable papers, and all the more so for how well I think they, they work together. I think there's going to be a, a lot of conversation to be had. Um, one observation that I had was the particular emphasis that all of them had on transformational moments in the respective histories of the objects they engaged. These migrations across 
uh, particularly format and the way that these threshold moments sort of manifested the, the points of difference that engaged all of you. So whether it was the sort of accretion of identifiers um, as um, yeah, surrogates of early English texts sort of um, you know, accrued in, the, um, you know, in, in a library setting, um, whether it's the um, transformation from a, a CD to a, a digital download, an, an, an MP3 or an MP4, or um, finally, of course, the example of, of the PDFs. And I think that's um, sort of wonderful and exhilarating and a natural kind of place for us to sort of um, engage that question of first principles, which you all alluded to as well, what bibliography in particular sort of has to bring to a kind of materialist sensibility for thinking about artifacts. But I wonder, too, if there isn't a sort of slight risk that we sort of um, become sort of reconciled to a version of media history that's sort of fundamentally staccato in nature um, or a kind of punctuated equilibrium. And if we risk occluding the extent to which objects continue to circulate, arguably change and transform, even without undergoing that sort of um, actual literal change or shift in, in a format. And I'm thinking, um, actually, Reka, you sort of alluded to that at the very end when you talked about, you know, as, as rumor has it, friends of yours um, <laughs> receive entire books as PDFs on a, a USB stick, right? And that's a, that's a case in which the, the format's not changing, but the means of distribution is changing radically, as is presumably even the, the meaning of what it means for that object to be a book when it sort of comes to you in, in that particular way. So I'm just wondering if folks on the panel sort of wanted to comment on this tension between, on the one hand, the kind of punctuated equilibrium of the format shift versus other ways of thinking about how digital objects can circulate and make meaning. Is this working? Soon on dog ear, yeah, he gave it a sharp number of years ago. He was even just 
he may have been the first person to notice that there were all these patterns in books, in, in books he was looking at, where the dog, it wasn't just that somebody had flagged a page, they were using the fold to point to something on the page. It was dog urine as a manicure, as it were. And that's something, when you start looking at that digital image as something that moved or could have moved, or maybe was moved back into place before it was photographed or microfilmed. There's, anyway, there's a temporality to that. Maybe that gets at what Matt's looking at, is, is, is the things that are happening when we're not looking at them. And the second thing I'll say very briefly is that that calls us to question the centrality of humans as agents. It's the non-human agents, machine agents, as, as others have called them. Um, it's maybe paraphrasing Mackenzie. It's he talks about the uh, that we are we have the capacity to find human presence in any recorded text, but there's also the inhuman presences that are worth looking at too. I just wanted to, to touch on that um, dictates the machine a little bit um, because when it comes to naming digital files, um, your machine very conscientiously tries to forbid you from naming two files the same name unless you actually want them to be one um, and overwrite your previous file because it says, oh no, I have something that's called that. Shall we overwrite it? Um, and so it's not necessarily that you want to create new identifiers, or that you want to indicate some sort of shift as you duplicate and, and make copia in your own system. Um, it's that the machine really can't handle the fact that you can name two, you can't name two things as one <coughs> or doesn't know what to do with them. So the machine itself is, is enforcing um, a multiplicity and a shift in your naming practices that asks you to see these things as different once you have more than one of them. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> 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 that Google comment on that is also when you search for PDFs just randomly on the on Google or anything that you, well, sometimes files have funny names and um, you wonder what is behind it. But I also want to come back to, to what you said with like, uh, the bootleg and um, also the human and non-human agent. I mean, the songs still work. Like the Bob, the Bob Dylan bootleg still works, even if the Judas comments is not in there. But um, so might say more so. Exactly, exactly. But it's interesting to me how it bopped up and bopped out again, but yeah. only through this probably, well, um, the, the file that went through all of like the, the refining stages of uh, audio sampling or whatever um, to make it into the CD first and then the vinyl and then into the M, uh, M4A. Um, but then the, the Judas comment becomes audible and then it's being cut again. So yeah. it just has a temporality in it That's right. um, of 30 years where people have access to, to Bob Dylan kind of stubbornly playing aloud. Yeah. So you're going to call on people, yes? We're ready to open it up, yes. Uh, I, I have one of the mics. Are you ready? You guys can circulate. I'm like, I'm uh, hosting. It's a Uh, 
um, not that you should not use your sort of PDF Xeroxes, but these are sort of different iterations, right? Um, yeah. Which is very much to your point. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to get back to kind of Matt's question about first principles um, and bibliography and the digital, um, and uh, why media archaeology isn't the thing that we should be, the framework that we should be using um, for e all of these presentations. What, what, the, what the sort of, is there a limitation uh, in media archaeology that bibliography has an answer to? Would like the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not a, it's not really an American discipline, mm -hmm. so that's one of the reasons it's mm -hmm. not maybe represented better represented in this, in this group. But we have a German defense. So. <laughs> <laughs> Zones 
can help to um, remember what sort of use cases we're really catering to as we build things. Just building off of that, I'm a disciplinary magpie. Um, I was trained as a mathematician before I became a historian, before I started doing cultural history, and then somehow I ended up as a digital humanist doing bibliography. Um, so I'm a big fan of, of stealing whatever looks useful and understanding the context it comes from, obviously, uh, but working across those boundaries as well. That just makes me wonder about the example that you related in your first example, uh, in your first presentation on from, but you literally lost the connection to the book. So maybe can you explain this a little more, or can you maybe? I can explain it as long as you want. So if anyone's not familiar with early English books online, um, as an early modernist, it's one of the most useful databases that we have in the English-speaking early modern studies field. Um, it was a program that originally started during World War II to photograph um, cultural works that were under threat from bombing. And it continued well into, the, actually I think they still be photographing things today, but it was so hardcore through the 1960s, um, sort of the heyday. And these were using the brand new technology of microfilm. Um, and the microfilms are still the basis for many digitization efforts. So the microfilms were, began to be digitized in the 1990s, where file size was a real concern. And so the first digitizations were fairly um, stark black and white transfers. Um, <coughs> that in itself lost information. It was a bit of a, a lossy transfer, um, I think we can safely say. And then in the 2000s, those digital images were transcribed in a double key process by the Early English Books Online Text Creation Partnership working with transcribers in the Philippines. Um, they never referred back to the microfilm. So if you want to work back through the chain of remediation, you can actually fill in many gaps where people could not read the, the digital images and fill in the gaps of transcriptions by just going back to the microfilm without really needing to go back to the physical book for the most part. Um, but these are faithful transcriptions. So if the original book was missing a page, the transcription is missing a page. If the original book was illegible in places, they specifically instructed the transcribers not to attempt to guess. Um, so you have this uh, things that can build, and people can make arguments based on what they think the reason for a missing word, um, a transcription error, or, or what have you is. But working back to the chain of remediation, it sometimes surprises researchers where, where things become introduced. This is almost literally a footnote, but if, if you're interested in Ebo as an example of a digital object or collection that has a history, uh, I'd like to plug an article by my friend Bonnie Mack called Archaeology and Digitization, uh, which is a wonderful, I mean, there's, there's a great scholarship on Ebo by many people in India as well and others, but Archaeology of a Digitization by Bonnie Mack goes through much of the story, especially the Cold War, con or Cold War context and prior, and Looks at looks at it from a cultural history angle and looks at the labor as well, but also looks at it with the eyes of the bibliographer and especially the medievalist as well. Uh, it's a great great argument. One thing I'm going to take my uh, organizers' part of Maybe you brought up the use use the word copy, and many I mean all all of the all of the time uh, the talks and so on talking about duplication replication, and, and I, I guess I was wondering about Stephanie's question whether one of the 
whole sphere of uh, possibilities within that. Within that um, we were having about language when you're writing this, whether um, item manifestation, a text, and so on would be um, getting too deep into the library world, um, and thought that maybe copy was a more accessible term for referring to a single digital object. So if, if, if the term digital object started sounding weird to you by the end, it was really weird to us uh, fairly early on in writing this. Ryan's question one step further. I'm John Wolfdoll, director of Special Collections Georgetown University. Um, I was very struck in all three presentations with the dynamic nature of the objects you're studying. Um, database proliferations of databases with proliferations of unique identifiers. Um, a famous album and a famous article, either of which if they are replaced on the server with a corrected or altered uh, file, there will be no trace and um, no way of going back and finding the traces, um, perhaps. Um, PDFs that are proliferated as we download them to our local hard drives and then print them out and then annotate them and then scan them and then upload them again. It's, it's incredible. This led me to think one step further to the fact that so much of the information that is out there in the digital world is in database form and is dynamically generated to begin with. And for um, us as bibliographers of printed things, that has implications. There is a feedback loop as database stored information becomes the source creating um, print-on-demand books, for example, or those PDF files, um, and then uh, perhaps leading to every manifestation being, um, every item being a, a, a new issue. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm not sure quite where to take the question, except just to, to, to ask if you have thoughts about the dynamic nature of these things and, 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 and that feedback loop and how we grapple with that um, from this, or, or how we, how we uh, modify our, our practice to deal with it. Well, I mean, one of the things that you see in, in databases and sort of in the digital world is you see version control, right? So this obsessive tracking, like you see especially on Wikipedia, every single tiny edit so that you can go back to any moment in time and resurrect it as it was at that moment in time. Um, as someone who's designed databases and projects, most of us don't have the, the server space for that. Um, and so we, we have to choose, like, what is the moment we're going to freeze a static manifestation of this for preservation for the future? Uh, and this is where you get into those huge debates about whether URLs need access dates and, and how specifically we need to attest to this changeable digital object. And I, I don't think there's any consensus yet, because the needs of people who are building these are different from the needs of scholars who are citing these, uh, are different from people who are, are just kind of trying to get along with their lives and read stuff. Uh, so it's 
it's I think still a pretty shifting territory. I, I can uh, speak to it in the, in the context of, of bootlegs. Uh, it, it, uh, I mean, these are objects that are circulating in a social world, and so that the dynamism that you're talking about uh, is, is very much socially embedded. It's also, in, you know, notwithstanding my earlier comments about non-human agents, I think of uh, one of the things I'm studying now is looking at textual practices of the people who share and curate bootlegs online. Not pirates, not people who are, who are selling, selling things to record stores, actually the people who are putting those pirates out of business by sharing them for free on blogs. Uh, it's uh, royals, uh, recordings of indeterminate origin is the term they tend to use rather than bootlegs. So it's connected to tape traders who are not bootleggers. It's a different community. Um, point being is what they do is they, they keep changing, updating, re-editing, modifying, improving, or making worse recordings that have been circulating. Um, there's a lot of Tom Petty circulating in the last couple of weeks, um, as you can imagine. Um, and what they will often do is if it's a recording of a live concert, somebody will come along and say, okay, well, I've cleaned it up, I've, I've, I've boosted the mids. Uh, the, the, or if it's a very old recording from the 90s and it was recorded on a cassette, sometimes they'll speed correct it because the cassette tape will have changed the pitch because of the properties of magnetic tape. The point is that that dynamism happens in, in, a, in, a, in a cycle of re-editing and recirculating and, and modifying of these things. As a Shakespearean, I'm used to that because Shakespeare gets edited at alarmingly frequent rate and almost frequent. I think it probably distorts my understanding of editing. Um, but it's also the editing of performance as well. So there is, as, as with performance text, there is no single privileged perspective that can get locked down. So that, that anyway, that's, that's just to say, if you want to go look at that diamonds and looking at how non-professional amateurs deal with these things, not just with recordings, but other, other forms too. Um, so I think really to address both of the last couple of questions, Corey Doctorow, who a science fiction novelist who also writes for Born Going and so forth, um, has said on a number of occasions that computers are machines for copying bits. It's kind of a catchphrase that he uses. And what interests me about that is sort of the tension between the notion of copy on the one hand as a kind of individualized instance where we speak of that copy of the book, right? That, that one there on the table that's kind of dog-eared in the ways you were describing. But then on the other hand, of course, the notion of, of copy as a kind of simulacrum, right? The, the perfect replica or replica count, as we, we might say this week. Um, and so I think, I mean, I, you know, going back to sort of that question of first principles, my own sort of um, initial response to that, the, the phrase that I sort of scrawled in my notebook, is that one thing I think bibliography does bring and does teach us is a kind of uncompromising commitment to, to individuality, um, to the individuality of, of every artifact, every instance. And that seems to me, in a culture that's sort of driven by various kinds of quantitative measures, right? Like clicks, downloads, eyeballs, and you know, those, those raw quantitative metrics, that commitment to individuality seems very special to me. Um, not to say that media archeology span and some of these other disciplines don't also share some of that sensibility. I, I did have a question for you, um, Alan, um, just thinking about, um, you know, in particular what you were just describing with sort of the kind of social curation that happens in these bootlegger communities. The, the contrast to that, 
might be certain kinds of algorithmic curation. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I go to iTunes, I notice often what I sort of am looking at is um, presented as remastered or especially remastered for iTunes. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there isn't a kind of algorithmic scrubbing that's part of that you know, remastering process, which among other things, you know, by default will filter out extraneous crowd noise to make file sizes a little bit smaller. I'm just wondering you know, if you've you know, looked into that and whether that could be a factor in what happened. No, I haven't thought of that. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so there was, I was hoping somebody would be like, okay, it's this. It's a place yeah. to start looking. Yeah. Um, it does, it does, it, one of the larger questions it brings up though too is uh, mastering is a type of textual labor that can be performed by a human or by an algorithm. Um, people who do mastering work for recordings uh, use the phrase critical listening to describe what they do um, as, as the very human parts of what they do. Uh, one of the things I am looking into is, is just iTunes practices mm -hmm. and these sorts of things. Yeah. One imagines that this was uh, um, done in the most efficient way possible. Yeah, yeah. Which that would do it. Uh, but mastering is one of those things that uh, is like indexing. For those of you who have ever made an index, I mean, it's, it's significant that we give awards for indexes. Peter Mulaney, I believe, not long ago. It's something that people think can be done algorithmically, and it can be aided algorithmically, and there are some things that function like indexes, but they are, even now, they're still very human artifacts. They are reflective of human judgment. And uh, anyway, what you're talking about, I think, would be an interesting, it's an example of that interface yeah. between the two things. The, the moment between songs actually just strikes me as very, very analogous to uh, early modern practices and um, epistles and the kind of framework we use to structure our, our introductions to and, and exits from early modern texts, which in early modern drama, um, epilogues and prologues are similarly sticky, and that you'll have a, a prologue for a play that's um, uh, specific to a specific performance that gets dropped and doesn't suddenly reappears 15 years later in a new publication for no reason you can discern, um, and then pops in and out of the textual history of the play for the next hundred years. Uh, it strikes me as very similar. Um, he's had his hand up. I realize that I don't have anyone on this side. Uh, we'll go over here and then I'll come back. Okay, so I had a recent uh, very maddening experience that I think might be a useful case study for interrogating the difference between uh, media archaeology and bibliography, especially as it relates to solutions and, and inconsistencies. I own a, a, a Kindle, uh, I have an Audible account, I read Kindle uh, books on my telephone, I plug that telephone into the audio output, listen to the book, picks up exactly where I left off reading uh, while I'm driving to work. Jonathan Safer Fuller's Here I Am, uh, two separate texts. What appears in Kindle and what is read to me are two separate texts. And I would not have known this if it doesn't sort of follow along on the screen reading to you and saying onion out loud when it says cabbage on, on the screen. And I got, I got maddened, of course. Uh, I was like, so who do I complain to? Do I complain to the author? Do I complain to the publisher? Do I complain to the author? Which of these is the reader's advanced copy? Is this just a very old edition? That, and how, do you, how would I catalog or instantiate this experience of reading? What just happened to me? And it's a very long book, so I happy to be done with it. But it's, a, it's an example of these sort of slippages that occur uh, that 
quiet for paying attention. There's something going on, but we don't know what it is. <laughs> I'll just quickly uh, quote my colleague Randy McLeod, who once said, multiple authority is richness. So our, our, the nature of our response to that moment is, is interesting. Um, there's a whole longer conversation I won't dive into there, but um, I would say on audiobooks, check out Matthew Ruberg's work. Uh, he's got a new book on, on audiobooks. He's written the book on audiobooks, and it's available, of course, as an audiobook. <laughs> Presumably, it's the same text. But, yeah. <laughs> um, to go back to the idea about the digital surrogates, and that we have multiple copies of these digital objects, it also strikes me that we have multiple records of them. And so if you're describing the physical information in the catalog for the physical item, then you're re-describing it in the digital item as well. We're talking about versioning and how if you replace something in one system, you might have the version control system, but how are you managing all of these different databases that are describing the same information? Is this an automated process to keep them in sync, or are you, do you have workflows coordinated among different departments that are responsible for these different things? We're working on this. <laughs> <laughs> In a week, our new digital asset platform prototype is going live. Um, so currently, yes, we have, for instance, that box of letters described in Hamlet at, at the box level and in our finding aid at the individual letter level. And um, the current way that that gets reconciled on something like Luna, which refers to both of them, um, is that uh, Beth <laughs> goes in by hand and changes things which is not a great system, as this one that. She's um, talented, but still. So we're working on something that's called, um, it, it'll be called Miranda, because we have to name everything after Shakespeare characters. Um, and Miranda will allow you to look at the digital image and the record next to each other in the same environment. So this new digital asset platform will hopefully start reconciling some of those problems by bringing everything into dialogue a bit more closely so you don't have to have human intervention to say that the finding aid information should be with the letter. It helps to have all the identifiers. With that, we are at our time. So please join me in thanking our really fantastic panel.